This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much once again for this time uh, as we discuss um, issues in the Old Testament, uh, attacks that are leveled by prominent atheists that uh, you committed genocide and that some of the killings enacted are harsh and arbitrary. And Lord, as, as human beings who uh, want to see and desire to see you as a God of love and one who has mercy and is long-suffering, Lord, help us to uh, come to grips with, with some of these things. Uh, some of these questions are, are challenging. We don't have all the answers per se, uh, but at the same time, Lord, where uh, we have shortcomings, we pray that you would give us sufficient faith, uh, faith on which, or evidence on which to base our faith. And uh, we thank you, Lord. Uh, be with our thoughts. Put, uh, put your divine thinking cap on our heads and help us to grapple with these things. We thank you so much, Lord. And we ask all this in your name. Amen. As I just stated, this is a very, very challenging topic. I know every one of you are probably in here because you've read the Old Testament and you've uh, read some texts where you found to be very, very challenging. And most specifically, uh, claims that only an evil God would commit the so-called, and I call it so-called, genocide uh, that we see uh, in the Old Testament or the claim that is made that it is genocide in the Old Testament. So we're going to wrestle today. Uh, this is a result of personal study. Uh, I don't claim to have all the answers. Um, and certainly um, I uh, have, have done enough study where I can do a presentation like this. Having said that, I want to share that uh, it is also uh, still challenging uh, for me in dealing with some of these concepts. But uh, the Bible does provide, I believe, sufficient evidence on, on which to rest and hang our hat on that God did do some of these things in the Old Testament, and yet he can retain uh, the character of an all-loving uh, God that we know him to be. And so we're going to do that. Uh, we're going to start off by looking at some of the, um, the, the arguments that are leveled at the Old Testament God. And it's coming in the shape of what's, what, what they've termed, uh, I don't know if they've termed it uh, or, or others have termed it, but there's four individuals who fall under this category, the new atheists. One of them uh, died recently, I think several years ago, uh, Christopher Hitchens with uh, cancer. But they are the new public, popular face of atheism. And, uh, and so here you see Richard Dawkins. And I, I just want to read this statement. This is something that I think all of us have to consider this, uh, in terms of what he says here. He says, isn't it a remarkable coincidence? Almost everyone has the same religion as their mom and dad, right? And it always just happens to be the right religion. Religions run in families. If we'd been brought up in ancient Greece, we would all be worshiping Zeus and Apollo. If we had been born Vikings, we would be worshiping Wotan and Thor. How does this come about? Well, through childhood indoctrination, right? And I think he raises a really good question that we shouldn't be Seventh-day Adventist Christians simply because mom and dad are, but because we have ourselves intentionally studied out some of these issues for ourselves and, came and have come to the conclusion that the Seventh-day Adventist Church is the remnant church. And I believe that, that every one of us need to do that. Christopher Hitchens, that's what he looks like. We're not going to take the time uh, to read that. He's, he's just basically saying, hey, you know, Atheists today can now say what we couldn't before because we would have had our heads chopped off. 
but now Christianity is coming with all the, the rosy, smiley, mommy, daddy kind of uh, uh, lovey-dovey kind of feel about it. And so Christianity has changed because it's been forced to, and that's, that's something that he's sharing in regards uh, to Christianity, and he's the one that, that perished several years ago. Sam Harris, a philosopher from Stanford, um, he's one of the guys right at the forefront of leveling attacks. We're going to look at a, a quote that he shares uh, later on. And then there's, a, there's Daniel Dennett, and um, he's also... Uh, one of the four atheists. And these are some of the claims of the new atheists, and we're going to start with Richard Dawkins. And notice what he says, and every time I, I do this slide, i got to review what he says, because it, there, there, there are a lot of tongue twisters in how he describes God. He says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, uh, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That was, that was challenging. That was, I will admit, every time I do that, it's challenging. But you can just see uh, the adjectives there and how he's describing the Old Testament God specifically. And those are very strong words. Now, I do want to qualify that. We're not going to have time to address all the issues. That would take uh, a week-long seminar to do that. But we are going to hit specifically the, the, the claims of genocide and also some of the uh, so-called arbitrary killings that we see in the Old Testament. For example, the Egyptian who was uh, collecting uh, kindling on the Sabbath and, and then stoned to death, right, at the command of God. Um, and so we're going to look at some of those texts um, as we move forward. So we don't have time to address all these things, but, but this will be a good start for you as, you as you study some of these issues. So this is Christopher Hitchens speaking of the Canaanites and the Old Testament. Uh, the Canaanites were pitilessly driven out of their homes to make room for the ungrateful and mutinous children of Israel. In the Old Testament, there's a warrant for trafficking in humans, for ethnic cleansing, for slavery, for a bride price, and for indiscriminate massacre. Right? Very strong language. Language that typically we would reserve for terrorists today, right? And so, very strong language. Uh, Sam Harris, not only is the character of God diabolical or devilish in the Old Testament, but there are explicit prescriptions for how to live that are not metaphors. They are not open to theological judo. God just comes right out and says, stone people for a list of offenses so preposterous and all-encompassing that the killing never stops. You have to kill people for working on the Sabbath. I've, I've often thought myself, you know, and in, in sharing and being vulnerable here, reading about um, uh, it was deserving of death if you cursed your parents. That would, that would mean that I would not be here today, right? I, I would not, yeah, I would not be here uh, to share this presentation. And uh, praise God that, that uh, he, has re he rescues us from the pit of sin in which we lie. But there are a number of sins in the Old Testament that you and I would not be alive to be present here at GYC if we perhaps lived back then. At least that is the assumption. Okay, at least that is the assumption. We're going to look at some of these things. So charges against God. Charges against God. So if you look at all of them, there's inf inferiority of women, slavery, jealous, self-centered God, the universality of the Mosaic laws, ethnocentrism, you have bride pricing, the binding of Isaac, uh, genocide, what we're going to cover today, and some arbitrary laws. And the question is, is what are we to do 
uh, with these texts. If we're honest with ourselves, how do we address some of these challenging uh, incidents of the Old Testament? I want to read, he's a non-Adventist author, but he's, he's a conservative Old Testament uh, scholar, uh, Bible-believing individual that has wrestled with some of these questions, and he kind of articulates what all of us are thinking. Okay, And so this is what he says, some of us wince when we read Dawkins' words. Not just because we find them offensive, but because if we're honest, we sometimes find ourselves thinking the same thing. When we read the Old Testament, what are we to make of the text that speak of God meeting out horrific punishments on whole families like Achan and Korah? Or a God who smites a man dead for touching a sacred object? We're going to talk about that or for offering the wrong kind of sacrificial fire? How are we to understand the language of God's anger, jealousy, or vengeance, alongside what we have been taught about God's love, his mercy, and his compassion? Very good question that I believe uh, comes to the mind of many of us as we read the Old Testament. This is what he says, and this is where I get... uh, um, uh, derived my title for this message, uh, for this panel, di- or this discussion. He says, Bible believers shouldn't shove uh, these Old Testament ethical challenges under their holy rugs. And this is what, what happens when we do that. As people of the book, Christians, we, we should honestly, of course, reflect on such matters. Unfortunately, Most pastors and Christian leaders, and he's speaking broadly here, are reluctant to tackle such objects. And the results are fairly predictable. When uninformed Christians are challenged about these texts, they, not just maybe, they are rattled uh, in their faith. And so he's, he's also being honest and he's saying, hey, we, we, we can't run away. We can't shove it under the rug. Let's deal honestly with what the Bible is saying and try to make sense of it. And we have to bear in mind a couple things. Number one, the Old Testament is, is a far-removed book in time and culture. The new atheists aren't theologians. Keep that in mind. They're not theologians. They are not unbiased students of Scripture these uh, new atheists, they aren't rigorous in their attempts to understand the complexity of Scripture. We've got to keep that in mind. And, and they do not give due consideration for the historical context, and they don't do justice in responsibly applying what Scripture has to say about God in its entirety. So keep in mind, when they come to Scripture, they're... they're Uh, approaching it from the perspective that they are looking for those texts to nail God, right? They're not trying to study the whole of Scripture, the entire Scripture, to uh, come to some objective conclusion uh, based on the entirety of Scripture. But this is precisely what you and I must do when we read Scripture to be diligent students of Scripture and read what all of Scripture has to say concerning these things. So I'm going to start off with some rules of thumb. Number one, we really have to humbly admit that we don't have all the answers. Okay? So we, we, we humbly admit we don't have all the answers. God has not revealed everything. Right? God hasn't revealed everything. And much of what's revealed, right, or at least some of what's revealed, isn't clear regarding some of the intentions of God and some of the why questions that we're riddled with. And so we should accept this in in faith and humility. I want to read a quote from Ministry of Healing. She says, Men of the greatest intellect cannot understand the mysteries of Jehovah. Divine inspiration asks many questions which the most profound scholar cannot answer. These questions were not asked that we might answer them, but to call our attention to the deep mysteries of God and to teach us that our wisdom is what? Is limited. 
that in the surroundings of our daily life, there are many things beyond the comprehension of finite beings. Skeptics, like the four atheists, refuse to believe in God because they cannot comprehend the infinite power by which God reveals himself. But God is to be acknowledged, and I love this quote. She says, but God is to be acknowledged as much from what he does not reveal of himself as from that which is open to our limited comprehension. Both in divine revelation and in nature, God has given mysteries to command our faith. This must be so. We may be ever searching, ever inquiring, and ever learning, and yet there is an infinity beyond. An infinity beyond. Second point that we need to, some rules of thumb. We, we, we need to recognize that our thoughts aren't God's thoughts, and spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Keep in mind that the new atheists are not spiritual, right? They're not spiritual individuals, and they're not, dis, they're not interpreting Scripture with, with a converted heart. God, in, in Isaiah 55, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 14, the natural man, the natural person, you and I outside of God, unconnected from God, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot know them because they are spiritually discerned. So point number two, as a rule of thumb, we have to understand that spiritual things are spiritually understood. Number three, you're not going to win a closed-minded atheist with heated argumentation, right? Do you think an atheist ever been won because they were humiliated because you just like made them look like a fool and they were like, oh, now I want to be a Christian? <laughs> That's probably not going to happen, right? And so let's keep in mind that, that the, the, the purpose of this is not to have ammunition or bazookas to like launch at people. It's for us, number one, to come to an understanding ourselves about the character of God, and that when others have some confusion in regards to these things, we can be helpful in explaining some of these passages to them. Number four, as a rule of thumb, in the great controversy, and this is a very important point, and I want you to really consider this, in the great controversy, God attains the ultimate victory. That is true. But the victory is achieved with losses. The victory is achieved with losses. In other words, there is an absolute winner, but, the win, but it's not an absolute win in, in, in the sense that there are casualties in the war, right? People are going to be lost in the great controversy as a result of decisions made for rejecting uh, God and so forth. So although we do have an absolute winner in God in, in, in that sense, I hate to use that, that, that term, uh, a competitive term there, but, but God is ultimately victorious, but it does come at a loss, okay? And, and, and the Old Testament is, is uh, a testament to that, that very fact. So it's not an absolute win, although we do have an absolute winner, so to speak. Now, once sin entered the earth, okay, and, and this is just expounding on that thought, once sin entered the earth, every viable option on the table involved people dying eternal death, okay? And so, uh, and that is because the free will of humans, the free will of humans, which is the basis of love, you cannot have love without the freedom of will, the free will of humans precluded an absolute option where all would be saved. We're going to talk a little bit more about that when we discuss the issue of evil. And so uh, that's just something for you to consider and think about. Uh, if you want some more additional resources to read, I would encourage you to read uh, the chapters in Patriarchs and Prophets and Great Controversy where where Ellen White deals with the subject of, of evil and the permitting of evil and so forth. So let's look at a biblical response here to some of these things. Scripture, if you read Scripture, Scripture assumes 
the righteousness, uh, the love, and the justness of God. Okay, you can see that in a variety of passages. The one I chose is in Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. Now, in this scenario, you have the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember that scenario? And and, and so here you have Abraham kind of uh, wheeling and dealing with God. Hey, God, you know, he finds out that that, uh, uh, Jesus himself is going down to to do an investigative judgment, if you will. And so as he's going down there, you know, he's wagering with God, and he's saying, hey, if, if there's 50, if there's 50, won't you spare them? And of course, Jesus says, yes, I'll spare them. And he says, okay, hey, I got 50. What about 45? And then, of course, 45 is agreed upon. And then he goes in increments of, of 10 after that. Or he goes to 40, then he goes to 30, and then he goes to 20, and then he goes to 10. Right? And in Genesis chapter 18, 25, these are the words of Abraham. He says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. And then he says, Far be that from you. That is not like you, right? And then he says, Will not the judge of all the earth do the right? Thing, right? Will not the judge of the earth do the right thing? So, so Bible writers and prophets of all themselves had this assumption that God dealt justly and fairly with his people, even in the context of destruction like we do see here in Sodom and Gomorrah. So when you look at, for example, the Canaanite genocide, okay, um, as one, uh, one theologian says, it's admittedly the most difficult Old Testament ethical issue uh, is this divine command to kill the Canaanites. So what are we to do with these texts? And I'm going to share one of them. There's several places where you can find passages like this. But it says here in Deuteronomy 20, right? In the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. Whoa, right? But you shall devote them to complete destruction. And then it goes on to list the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and so forth, the Perizzites. As the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices, that they have done for their gods, and so that you would sin against the Lord your God. By the way, that's, that's one of the, the, the reasons that, that God is giving in the book of Deuteronomy uh, for, for um, the destruction of the Canaanites. So moving forward, let's go ahead and start with what we do know about God and what is revealed in Scripture about God. First and foremost, and that is that God is patient and that he's slow to anger. You, all of you know, as good Adventists know, uh, the text in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God who is merciful, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. By the way, this verse in and of itself assumes, and think about this for a moment, this verse here assumes that this, this notion of by no means clearing the guilty is, is not mutually exclusive from the other attributes of God, like mercy and graciousness and, and love and faithfulness, okay? So there's no uh, uh, necessarily a contradiction between justice and, and mercy. And you see that right here in this passage, or it's at least assumed in this passage. So on that basis, in the context uh, of, of the Canaanite so-called genocide, uh, we're going to look at uh, some of the things, some of the considered things we need to consider. So God 
we, we looked at the character of God in, in, in mercy and the, the positive attributes and also the attributes dealing with justice. We also understand that when it came to the Canaanites, that God provided probationary time. Okay? It wasn't just a, all of a sudden, boom, uh, you're done kind of scenario. When, he, when, when God called uh, um, Abraham uh, initially and in his discussion with Abraham, notice what he, what he says here in Genesis chapter 15, verses 15 and 16. Um, he says, as for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. In other words, he's going to end up resting in peace and, and die a good old age, right? And they, your people, the Israelites, will come back back to Canaan in the fourth generation. Why? Because the iniquity the, the Amor, of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, um, sooner or later, at the appointed time, the, the non-Jewish people who occupy the land, right, while you're in Egypt, there will come a time where they will become ripe for judgment. And then God will use uh, your posterity, so to speak, uh, uh, as, as a means of judgment and, and to possess that land. Okay? So this passage suggests that the Canaanites at the time of Abraham were not yet so wicked as to warrant a comprehensive judgment. So at the very least, we understand, and we're going to expound on this, that that. The, the reason why, or, or the justification uh, that, that, that God had in, in um, uh, and again, it's hard to use the right word that, that doesn't portray God as someone as harsh, but when the command was made to wipe out the Canaanites, okay, uh, it was a moral consideration. We see that in the passage. It was a moral consideration that they had not reached a, a point of no return, so to speak, and so they were not to possess the land. God's people were to wait. And by the way, God's people had to wait a long time. In other words, they waited uh, 400 plus years, right, for the iniquity to reach that, that, that threshold, if you will. Okay, and, and we see that in, in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 14. It says, uh, this, uh, this is really a prophecy. Your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. Speaking of Egypt, they'll be servants there. They'll be afflicted there for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation that, uh, that they serve Egypt and afterward, they shall come out with great possession. So God is telling him, hey, the Amorite, the wickedness is not yet full. Your people are going to be in Egypt, and after these years, they're going to come out. Okay? So God did provide probationary time. Another consideration is, is uh, point three, that there, were, that there were grounds for culpability. In other words, the Canaanites did know better. If you read in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 25, so in other words, we're going to look at some passages, we're going to fly through some passages. Uh, you're not going to have time to open it in your Bible or else we're not going to get done with this. But go ahead and jot them down. Also, these uh, presentations, I'm going to try and make them available for all of you to uh, utilize as a resource, and we'll make that happen some way. But, but notice what Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 25 says, and this is before the conquest takes place. He says, This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish uh, because of you. And, and we're dealing with this question of, hey, did the Canaanites really know better? Did God just... Just, you know, without them really knowing right from wrong, did he just wipe them out? And, and how can they be judged when they, didn't, they had so little light? And, 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 and it's like spanking a child when he doesn't even know any better. How could God do that? And so the argument that I am making here that Scripture is also affirming is that the Canaanites did have a knowledge of God. Okay, So Deuteronomy 2.25 at least provides some suggestion of that. 
and then we see it more clearly and more explicitly in Joshua chapter uh, 2, verses 9 through 11. These are the words of Rahab. And notice what she says here, right? This is prior to the conquest of Jericho. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. For we, meaning our people, the, the, the Jerichoites, if you will, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for, for, for when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. So here it's, there's a suggestion is made very strongly and explicitly that they did have access to a knowledge of God, okay, and his miraculous intervention in behalf of Israel. All right, and, and, and so in commentary on this, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 492, the inhabitants of Canaan had been granted ample opportunity. Did you know that Ellen White was also an apologist? By the way, she was aware of these issues. And notice what she says. They had been granted ample opportunity for repentance. Forty years prior, the opening of the Red Sea and the judgments upon Egypt had testified to the supreme power of the God of Israel. The holiness of his character and his abhorrence of impurity had been evinced in the judgments visited upon Israel for their own uh, iniquity, right? And then moving forward, all these events were known to the inhabitants of Jericho. And there were many who shared Rahab's conviction, though they refused to obey it, that Jehovah, the God of Israel, is God in heaven above and upon the earth beneath. Like the men before the flood, the Canaanites lived. And notice what it says here. They lived only to blaspheme heaven and defile the earth. And both love and Justice, two attributes of the character of God, demanded the prompt execution of these rebels against God and foes to man. Think of it like this. God, God um, pronounced judgment on the inhabitants of the Canaanites or the, the Canaanites for the same reason that we would pronounce judgment on terrorism and terrorist activity that we see taking place, where you have uh, uh, people who are doing things that are just, I mean, when you read the news, it's, it's unbelievable the, the, the extent of evil that we're seeing in this world. And so uh, you have some of the, the same ideas going on here, that, that uh, the same justification for, for, for uh, terrorists uh, today would be the same justification that we would see against the Canaanites. Okay, number four. There was a criteria, right? There was some logical basis for the decisions made against the Canaanites. So we've looked at several factors thus far. And, and firstly, the Canaanites were wicked. So I mentioned before there, wa there was a moral justification for the judgment, not one based on race or, or, or simply a, a nationalistic endeavor. Deuteronomy 9.5 says, Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Okay, so when you look at some of the Canaanite sins, um, we're going to look at some of them here. In Leviticus chapter 18, uh, verses 20 through 30, and there are some of the sins that we see taking place today, right? You should not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife. So the sin of adultery was taking place. You should not give any of your children uh, to, uh, children to offer them to Molech. So there was child sacrifices going on. And, and I am a, a father of a 15-month-old. I, I can't even begin to comprehend uh, what it would take, the, the, the thought press process behind sacrificing an innocent 
young child uh, to some god. Um, and so this was obviously one uh, of the key sins that are emphasized in the Old Testament, not just here. You shall not lie uh, with a male as with a woman. So you also have homosexual, homosexuality taking place. And, then you, and you shall not lie with any animal. So there was bestiality also taking place. And then he goes on, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these, for by all these, in other words, these sins, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, so that I punished its iniquity. Do none of these abominations, lest the land vomit you out. Now, how many of you have ever vomited before? Probably most of us have, have vomited. It, it, you only vomit something when it's just, it reaches a point, right? A threshold where your stomach just says, no more, I'm coming out, right? And you don't have a choice sometimes in the matter. It's just going to come out. And, and so the, this language is very strong, right? They had reached a, 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 such an extent of distaste, right, in terms of the level of wickedness, the maturity of, of, of the wickedness, that God uses this language of, of vomiting, uh, that they were vomited out because of these abominations. So several points that can be gleaned from these passages. The basis for their destruction and judgment was fundamentally on account of their wickedness. There were moral grounds for their judgment. Race and ethnicity were never the cause for their demise. This is implied in the passage itself when the warning is given to the Israelites, right? Uh, not to partake in, partake in the same sins that the judgments of the Canaanites would befall them should they also commit the same abominable practices. And by the way, they did commit the same abominable practices. Therefore, uh, you have the demise of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722, 721 B.C., and then you also have the demise of the southern kingdom of Judah in about 586 B.C. And so the same thing that did happen uh, to the Canaanites also happened to the Israelites in that they were displaced from their homeland. Okay? And by the way, and, and, and scholars widely recognize this fact that not all the Canaanites, and you find this when you read the book of Judges, that not all the Canaanites were exterminated. Much of the language used in the Old Testament is not to annihilate them, but to drive them out, right? And so, um, so if, you, if you do a careful study of the Old Testament, there's more language in the context of the Canaanites that have to deal, that deal with driving them out than they do with annihilating them, okay? And so uh, many have concluded that, that um, the, the statements or the texts that deal with annihilation have to do with those who uh, remain behind the warriors, the fighters, and, and those who were blatantly uh, um, uh, standing their ground wanting to uh, maintain uh, the possession of, of, of Canaan, whereas uh, the assumption is that, that many of the children and perhaps the young people uh, left and, and fled before the terror uh, of the Israelites. Uh, if you recall, he also mentioned that he would send hornets to drive them out, right? And so you have that language of, hey, God didn't just sit there and wipe everyone out. Many were driven out and, and, and moved to other areas and places. All right, so a lot of heavy stuff here and a lot of things to consider. Uh, the second thing, as far as uh, the, the, the thought process behind it, the Israelites were to purge the land, right? There, there was a rhyme and reason. Uh, the Israelites were to purge the land of corrupting influences. So the same reason why you may throw away your CDs and your, your former, the things that you listen to or whatever, uh, God... Uh, wanted to prepare a people with a very high calling to be uh, a savior, so to speak, to the world as his instruments to share the, the word of God to the surrounding world and nations. So they were to purge the land of the corrupting influences. The warning was given, and we saw this alluded to in the, another passage. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 17 and 18, 
You shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites and so forth, as the Lord your God has commanded. And then it says that they may not teach you to do according to their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so that you will sin against the Lord your God. Right? So that was one of the reasons. Now, they didn't do that, and so what was the result? The psalmist actually reflecting backwards on the experience of ancient Israel, of ancient Israel and not, and not um, uh, uh, um, in mingling with the Canaanites and not driving them all out. Notice the result as the psalmist declares in Psalms chapter 106. This is verses 34 through 36, 37 through 39. It says, They, speaking of the Israelites, did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded, but they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters their children, and shed what the Bible describes as innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters. You notice how that's emphasized here, that these child sacrifices. Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot uh, in their deeds. So, So there were certainly some moral justification. There was also some practical considerations in getting rid of of harmful influences. We also have to keep in mind that that God had the end in mind. He had the ultimate end in mind. The probationary cessation, or the, the end of probation of the Canaanites, made it possible for God to enact justice and initiate the Canaanite conquest for the establishment of Israel as his light bearers to a fallen world. God had a twofold purpose for Israel. First, to employ ancient Israel as his instruments of justice, which angels also have done at the command of God as well. Keep that in mind. First, to employ ancient Israel as his instruments of justice, and secondly, to prepare his people to become vehicles or instruments of salvation to the world. We find this in Genesis chapter 12, 3, and also in 28, 14, in the original promise, in, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then it goes on when he's speaking to Jacob, reiterating the promise in the context of the offspring. He says, and in you, speaking of Jacob, and your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So the ultimate purpose, God had the end in mind, that his people would be a blessing to uh, the surrounding nations. And it was imperative that they remove all those influences that they were so inclined to follow. And we see that uh, from the get-go. We see it from their demand to have a king. Uh, uh, in, in, in line with the practices of, of the heathen nations around them. They just had a penchant to do that. And by the way, do you and I also have struggles uh, in our lives? Are there practical reasons why you and I may, may need to remove ourselves from certain friends and societies? I, I, I have a little, uh, in my own testimony, you know, whenever I share this with people, people are, their jaws always drop down like, no way. But, but God saved me out of a condition where uh, when I went to the University of North Carolina. At that point, I, I wanted nothing to do with God. So I was like, you know what? And this is often the mindset of Adventists. And don't follow uh, into my example. It's like we, we can go into ex- extremes. I was super hardcore vegan, ultra-con, uh, ultra like. Um, like I, I, I didn't like I, I would not even eat oil. You know, I was I wouldn't step on grass because I didn't want to st- hurt grass. I mean, I wasn't that crazy, but you know, I was pretty out there, right? And so when I said no to God, I was like, you know what? I'm going to try the world all the way, and I immersed in, in uh, got immersed in, in drugs and and so forth, and and God had to rescue me out of a pit of of horror and sin that I knew 
there was no way possible I was going to get out of. And, and praise God that he did that. And only, and only God can do that. And, and one of the things that I, uh, the, the point of the matter is, uh, the point I was going to make is this, that, that there were certain friends that, that I had to make a decision that I, I just could not see anymore. I remember after I, I quit um, smoking a certain drug that, you know, I was like three weeks victorious. And I was like, you know what? Like, I, I got this now. You know, I'm, 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 I'm good. And I remember going to my friend's house, and what do you think I did? I, I, I did it again. And then I realized, you know what? I really, really cannot go back. And, um, and so, so uh, in this vein, God understood that the influence of the Canaanites would be destructive, not just physically, because they would do physical harm to the Israelites, but also morally and spiritually, which are even more important factors. Um, so on the destruction of Jericho, which was an act of both judgment, uh, which, which was an act, uh, an act of both judgment and also mercy, um, I want to uh, read a quote from Patriarchs and Prophets. Notice what she says here uh, in, in, in this uh, passage here. Page 492. The utter destruction of the people of Jericho was but a fulfillment of the commands previously given through Moses concerning the inhabitants of Canaan. Thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Of, uh, of the cities of these people, thou shalt save alive nothing that breatheth. Then it goes on. She says this. She acknowledges that these commands seem contrary, she says, to the spirit of love and mercy that are enjoined in other portions of the Bible. And it's like a huge stark contrast when you read Matthew 5 through 7, right, versus reading Deuteronomy, right, or Numbers, for example. So she, she's, she's, she's making that point. And then she says, but they were in truth the dictates of infinite wisdom. Remember, God can see things that we cannot see. God's ways are not our ways. There were dictates of infinite wisdom and goodness. God was about to establish Israel and Canaan to develop among them a nation and a government that should be a manifestation of his kingdom upon the earth. They were not only to be inheritors of the true religion, but to disseminate its principles throughout the world. The Canaanites had abandoned themselves to the foulest and most debasing heathenism, and it was necessary that the land should be cleared of what would so surely prevent the fulfillment of God's gracious purposes. And so God needed to, create, to, to have a people or risk wiping out no one being saved at all. And this was the plan he chose. I also want to say something about the judgment. The judgment is, is legit, right? The judgment is legit, to use a millennial term. I'm trying to be hip and cool here, even though I'm not. Um, the judgment is legit. So God is a God of blessing, but he's also a judge, who at times, for reasons only known to him, pronounces judgment on specific nations and people groups. Furthermore, God's local immediate judgment on nations in history serves as a prototype of God's ultimate and final eschatological judgment or end-time judgment. It's a prototype. These local judgments are a type of the final end-time judgment that will take place where ultimate vindication of justice will take place. Place And keep in mind that there was a moral or legal framework of judgment. It wasn't just some arbitrary walking down the street and killing someone kind of, uh, of thing. Notice what one uh, thinker has said. He, said. he says there's a huge moral difference between arbitrary violence and violence inflicted within the moral framework of punishment. This is true in human society as much as in divine perspective. There is a moral difference between the execution of a criminal convicted as guilty within a system of law 
versus a random murder of an innocent, right? It's the same reason why you, we can legitimately and legally get rid of, of, of terrorists and rapists and killers, not necessarily killing them, or, but putting them in jail and prison and so forth. I also want to explore this thought, and this is probably one of the most important concepts uh, that, uh, in regards to God that we need to understand. God is wrathful because he is love. Now, does that sound like an oxymoron to you? Does that sound contradictory? Uh, Let's think about this for just a moment. In fact, love can be the impetus of anger, even intense anger. And let me give you an example. You know, every day you, you read the news of Hollywood stars and, 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 and people in the news, and you read about famous people, wives cheating on husbands, uh, men raping women, and, it, and it's also vice versa. I've seen it the other way as well. And individuals committing murder. And, and keep in mind, we're talking about love being the impetus of anger and intense anger, or God is wrathful because he is love. We see these things taking place on a daily basis. And guess what? For most of us, when it's someone out there, does it faze you and I? No, it's, you just read it, and then it doesn't infect, it impact you at all. You just move on. But it's not until you're cheated on, or your daughter is raped, or your brother is murdered, that you become what? Wrathful. Exactly. And angry. The extent to which you're wrathful depends on the extent to which you love. Okay? The extent to which you're wrathful is contingent upon the extent to which you love. The more you love, the more wrathful you will be when someone you love is hurt or pained by another individual, or murdered, or killed. Now imagine God's infinite, boundless love. When he reads those newspapers, and God doesn't read newspapers, right? But when he sees these events happening, keep in mind that God has infinite, boundless love for every single individual. That he would have come, and he would have died for one person. And you imagine that love and then think of the wrath that he must feel every single day. Every single day. And that wrath is restrained because remember, God is slow to anger. 6,000 years, approximately, this world has been going on. And we're seeing And and what we're seeing today has taken place throughout human history. And his his wrath has been restrained and held back. Truly is a patient God because he's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. I love how this one man puts it. Uh, He was a Croatian who lived through the ethnic strife in former Yugoslavia. And he thought really hard because his own people were slaughtered murdered, raped, and killed. And he says, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed. Over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion, by refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead of affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think, in other words, it came to a conclusion that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful 
at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being loved. God is wrathful because he is love. And we need to see the justice and judgment of God in that context, in that light, and frame it in that way, and then you'll better begin to understand that in justice, there is love and God is love. We're going to close. We're, we only have four minutes left. Some challenging text. I'm going to probably skip one of the uh, examples. That, that ends the discussion on the genocide portion. But some of the challenging texts, like the Egyptian stoned to death for collecting kindling on the Sabbath. In Numbers chapter 15, it talks about he was gathering sticks on the Sabbath. And, uh, and of course, the, the command is given to stone him to death. And we have to keep in mind that when we read these passages, that we have to look at the whole entire context. See the passage in context. And when you do that, you notice that in the verses previous to that passage, uh, this statement is made that the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally, he shall be forgiven. Right? All unintentional sins would be forgiven. But the person who does anything with a high hand, right, and that's synonymous with premeditated defiant sin, that person will be uh, cut off. So number one, we understand that that was not a sin of ignorance, but one of defiance against God. Right In Patriarchs and Prophets, speaking of this very thing, the Lord, Lord's announcement that he would... Uh, am I, do I have the right... Oh, yeah. So if you, let's just skip to the bottom to save time. The act of this man was a willful and deliberate violation of the fourth commandment, a sin not of thoughtlessness or ignorance, but of presumption. And notice uh, there's other context there. There was uh, some defiance going on and, and anger and, and rebellion that was involved in that. You also have an incident where an Egyptian is stoned to death for cursing God. You find that in Leviticus chapter 24, uh, verses 10, 11, 13, and, and 14. He blasphemes the name of God. Uh, by the way, I would, I would point you to Patriarchs and Prophets and read uh, her statements on that. It's very enlightening. But notice it says... Uh, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses, and of course, the congregation stoned him. And in Patriarchs and Prophets, she says in page 40, 408, there are those who will question God's love and his justice in visiting so severe a punishment for words spoken in the heat of passion. But both love and justice require it to be shown that utterance, utterance is prompted by malice against God are a great sin. The retribution visited upon the first offender would be a warning to others. Okay, so, and then she says, and this man's sin, had this man's sin been permitted to pass unpunished, others would have been demoralized, and as a result, many lives would eventually have been sacrificed. Right? So, what she's essentially stating is that if, if he were not, um, uh, uh, if, if justice was not met there, many more would have been uh, killed. You also have uh, the case of Uzzah, or I should say not killed, but would have been, uh, think that it's okay, and then you would have more people uh, committing deliberate, outright sin against God. You have the case of Uzzah, right? God struck him down. You find that in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And I'm not going to go through all the, um, there's three reasons here, uh, and I'm going to go ahead and skip that because we do need to end. But I want to mention, um, you want me to summarize it at least? Okay. Because I'm hearing um, some defiance and rebellion out there. Uh, and I don't want you to be struck down. So, all right, so Why? We have to keep in mind that you want the verse. Um, it takes place in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And, and, and that's really all you need to know. You can read the entire passage there. The question is why. Number one, he disobeyed an explicit command. If you read the first Chronicles um, uh, version of the story, it says in verse 13, because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord your God broke out against us. This is in reference to that scenario. Because we did not seek him according to 
the rule. Now, when you read these, ver- these passages here, I'm not going to state them all, the ark wasn't to be carried on a cart. Things were supposed to be carried on the cart. I remember when, uh, I think it was President Obama, when he uh, met the Pope, I think he sat down and one of the cardinals like rebuked him because he was dishonoring uh, the Pope. And so uh, uh, this was, in, in some respects, considered... Um, uh, disrespectful to God, things and objects were placed on, on carts, not royalty and the things of God. Uh, only priests were to handle the ark. It was to be carried, utilizing poles inserted through rings on the ark side, right? And it was to be supported using the shoulders. Uh, so uh, in summation, this was insulting and disrespectful Uh, to a large extent, and the ark represented, keep in mind, the ark represented the very presence of God. You and I cannot see God and live in our sinful state. And the ark of God represented uh, the the very presence of God. I mentioned that carts were utilized to carry things, not royalty, and it it was a manifestation of a lack of concern for God and, of course, uh, their relationship. And, uh, and, of course, uh, to set an example and to minimize additional consequences. This was a public event. There were at least 30,000 people in attendance. And I want to uh, read what Patriarchs and Prophets has to say in, re- in regards to some of these passages. She says, The fate of Uzzah was a divine judgment upon the violation of a most explicit command. I was sharing that earlier. Through Moses, the Lord had given special instruction concerning the transportation of the ark, and their neglect of these instructions was dishonoring to God. Upon Uzzah rested the greater guilt of presumption. Transgression of God's law had lessened his sense of its sacredness, meaning the ark of God. God can accept no partial obedience. By the judgment upon Uzzah, he designed to impress upon all Israel the importance of giving strict heed. Thus, the death of that one man, by leading the people to repentance, might prevent the necessity of inflicting judgments upon thousands. There's two passages where Ellen White suggests that in order to save the many, uh, the few were sacrificed. I don't want to give the impression that God acts uh, on on this principle at all times and in all ways, right? That principle in in ethical theory is called utilitarianism. You know, the the greatest good for the greatest amount determines every decision you make. We have to keep in mind that God is consistent with with the law of God in his own nature. And and I I want to um, also mention this one, and this is the last slide here, that God being omniscient, makes truly objective decisions. He considers all the relevant data. For example, the command to stone the Egyptian or to put Uzzah to death, his decision may have been based on the fact that he also knew that those individuals had reached the point of no return. This isn't out of the question. He's God. And so we just have to keep in mind that when God enacts this justice, that at a certain level or at every level, we need to trust God that it will also be in accord, that it's in accordance with who he is as a loving, gracious, and merciful God. we got to end on that note, and uh, let's go ahead and bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we have covered a lot of material, certainly not mater- all the material is something we can remember, um, and so we thank you for audio verse. We thank you for the ability to go back and to listen to some of these messages and to clarify the notes. And we just pray, Lord, that this is just the beginning, that we will begin our own personal study into the Word of God, into the spirit of prophecy, that we may better and more clearly understand your character, who you are, and at the same time for the things that you have not revealed. Lord, give us the faith to believe even in our weakness and even in our unbelief. We thank you, Lord. We ask this in your name. Amen.
This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.